0: If you would, in your Bibles this morning, turn to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Last Sunday, we began to walk through this short prophetic book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. As far as we know, the last inspired prophet of the Old Testament. Oftentimes in history, we refer to the time between Malachi and Matthew as the 400 silent years, because there was a a long period of time where, as far as we know, there were no inspired prophets of God. So Malachi is the last voice before John the Baptist and Jesus arrive on the scene in the Gospels. You would think that for the people of Israel, after 70 years in exile, that they would have learned their lesson. Because Malachi is set within that post-exilic time, after the Israelites come back home from Babylon, after they have endured the punishment for their sins, for their rebellion, their previous rebellion, they, let, they were in Babylon for 70 years. And then they came back home. God brought them home, mercifully, graciously, uh, restored them back to Jerusalem, and they're restoring the city, they're building back the temple, worship societal life is restored. You would think they had learned their lesson, but how quick we are to forget, aren't we? Not just the Israelites. We like to look at them and say, man, how can they fall so quickly? How can they fall so often? How can they fall in the same thing so many times? And yet, that's just us, isn't it? That's just us. How quick we are to forget. And we see in Malachi that by his time, since the reforms of Haggai and Zechariah and the the glorious days of the finishing of the temple and the, the good reforms that were brought in with Ezra and Nehemiah, that things had already began to drift. And by the time of Malachi, we have people wondering if God even loves them anymore. And so in the first five verses of Malachi, he reminds them. That yes, God does love them and it would be impossible for God to forget about them. Because God's love for them is grounded in his eternal decree. God's love for them is grounded in his own sovereign will, in his own covenants, his own promises that he has made. It is impossible for God to forsake them. And they need to be reminded of that love of God once again. Even though things may not be unfolding in exactly the way that they would want or the way that they expected, that doesn't mean that God has forgotten about them. God still loves them. Beginning in verse 6, Malachi moves to his second disputation, if you will. Malachi is really a series of disputations in which there is either real or hypothetical dialogue, a hypothetical argument going back and forth between the Lord and his people. And, and Malachi is the middleman. Malachi is the one delivering the words of the Lord to the people. And he's also giving voice to the people's attitudes, frustrations, discouragements, failures, and sins. And what he does, beginning here in verse number 6, is he is going to call the, the religious leaders, the priests, specifically to account because of their failure to lead in the area of right worship with the people of Israel. What good is it if the people have returned back home to Jerusalem and a temple has been rebuilt and restored, and sacrifices to the Lord have been restored, all for them to be treated with contempt and dishonor and that's what Malachi is bringing before them. he's going to rebuke them pretty strongly in this passage about how they have failed to worship God in a right and worthy manner and so in verse number six, Malachi says. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now, plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations." From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we've come into your presence today to worship you. And this passage of scripture, your word that we have just read from your prophet Malachi, reminds us, warns us, that as we worship you, that we should do so in a way that honors you. In a way that brings you praise and glory. Father, I, I pray that as we reflect on this message today, even though it was written some twenty-four 2,500 years ago, that, Lord, that we would uh, receive its message and see its application to our lives today in the church. Father, bless this time. In the name of Christ, amen. The first point that Malachi is making in this passage is simply this that when we bring worthless things to the Lord in the name of worship, we dishonor him. When we bring worthless things to the Lord in the name of worship, we dishonor him. Malachi is specifically calling the priests, and really by extension the people, isn't he? Because yes, the priests are offering bad sacrifices on the altar, but who's bringing the sacrifices? The people are, right? And so his message is directed directly to the priest, but the people in general, they're not off the hook here either. Because they're the ones bringing the defiled, defective sacrifices that the priests are accepting and offering on their behalf. And so there's, there's plenty of blame to go around here in the way that they're worshiping God. Malachi begins in verse 6 to show us that God is a God who is worthy of honor. God is a God who is worthy of honor. So when we bring worthless things and we dishonor God, we're bringing them to a God who is worthy of honor, worthy of glory, worthy of majesty. And when we bring worthless things to him, we are dishonoring him. He says, using just kind of a general principle from life, a son honors his father and a slave his master. These are just general truisms of life, that a son would honor his father, a slave would honor his master. But then the Lord says, but if I'm a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Or literally, where is the fear of me? And there are many places in scripture where the Lord is called a father of his people. He's called the father of the Israelite people in the new Testament. We refer to him as our heavenly father. There are many places in scripture where God is, is referred to as the Lord or the master of his people. And so when he says, if I'm a father or if I'm a master, that's not a, if that has any doubt to it, it is an, if that is true, God is a father. God is a master. And so then the question is, where's my honor? You would give honor, you would give respect to human people, to human pos- people who are in positions of authority, but where is the honor that is due me, who is the Lord over all authorities? All authority comes from God, doesn't it? Any authority that, that a father has comes from the Lord because it's the Lord who said, Honor your father and mother. Any authority that a master has comes from the Lord because it's the Lord who said, honor those who are in authority over you and submit to them. The Lord is the ultimate authority, but they were disrespecting him. So God is worthy of honor, but offering worthless gifts to God shows contempt for God. Offering worthless gifts to God shows contempt for God. He says, you show contempt for my name. And by the way, God's name is, in Scripture is to be hallowed, isn't it? Third command, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And a lot of times we, we associate that with cursing or with just uh, flippantly using the name of God, but it's so much broader than that. Here in this context, when they bring a sacrifice and they offer it in the name of the Lord, on behalf of the sins of the people, and they're doing it with worthless sacrifices, defective sacrifices, they're profaning the name of God. And they're taking his name in vain. And the Lord says, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. There will be repercussions for that. They're showing contempt for him, contempt for his name. Apparently they were oblivious to this fact, or they were intentionally suppressing it, and they said, how? How are we dishonoring God? How are we dishonoring your name? And Malachi responds, by offering defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? How have we defiled your altar? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. Now, the commentators were a little bit disagreed here as to what Malachi is doing at the end of verse 7 when he says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Were the priests actually saying this? out loud the lord's table is defiled or the lord's table is contemptible many of the commentators came to the conclusion that this is not what they were saying out loud with their words but this is what they were saying with their actions this is in essence what they were communicating by the way that they were living and by the way that they were worshiping god so they might as well have been saying the lord's table is contemptible so, how are they defiling? By offering blind animals for sacrifice? By bringing lame or diseased, diseased animals? Isn't that wrong? And we know this comes from earlier in the Old Testament, from the book of Leviticus. And there are many, many places in the Pentateuch where Moses lays out the, the proper rules for bringing sacrifices before the Lord. They were to be without blemish, they were to be male. They were to be, in certain cases, of a certain age that these sacrifices were to be brought. But it appears that the priests, that the people were bringing and the priests were accepting and offering whatever. Their second best, their third best, whatever they had available. And there's some suggestion here that they were even bringing animals that maybe had been rescued, who had maybe been taken by a wild animal, and they'd found it, recovered it, it was maimed, and they brought it back and offered it as a sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, they're giving God their leftovers. Instead of giving God their best, which he required, they're giving God their leftovers, they're giving him what they already don't want themselves. How does that honor God? And now I know that this passage is so far removed from our time and our culture and our context, and, and we don't worship with sacrifices anymore. And so sometimes when we start thinking about the altar sacrifices in the Old Testament, our eyes kind of glaze over because it's, it's so far removed from us. We don't, we don't think in these terms. But I think we can make the transition, we can bridge the gap from 2,500 years ago to today, can't we? Fairly easily by the principle that God deserves more than just our leftovers. God deserves our very best. He doesn't deserve our leftovers. So, let me step on some toes for a minute, because that's my job, right? When we come and we gather and worship, are we giving God our best? Are we rested? Are we rested? If we're coming and we're fatigued and we were up late the night before and we we're so busy and so our weeks are so jam-packed, and, and by the time that we get to Sunday morning and we sit down, it's like the first time that we've sat down, and guess what's gonna happen? Your eyes are literally gonna glaze over, and you're gonna doze and fall asleep. Are, are we engaging our minds? Are are we are we sitting up and being attentive? Are we listening to the word of God? Not because I'm worthy of that, but because God's word is worthy of that. Are, are we are we focusing on and uh, engaging every ounce of our attentive ability in worship of the Lord? Are we giving God our best in our singing? Are we giving God our best in our singing? I would love, and I'm just, I'm just speaking here from my own heart, even, sitting in the front row and hearing the, the voices behind me. I would love to hear maybe five, ten more decibels of voices behind me. Giving every ounce of, of effort, of energy that we can to honor the Lord. And you say, well, I can't sing, I can't carry a tune. Hey, make a joyful noise, right? Make a joyful noise. Giving God the very best that we can. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to offer to the Lord our very lives, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, as a continual daily sacrifice to the Lord. Are we giving God our best, not just in an hour on Sunday morning or Sunday night, but are we giving God our best with our lives? as a living sacrifice to God. Are we giving God our best? He's worthy of it, isn't he? And he makes the, the, he, answers, he asks the question at the end of verse number eight, would your governor accept that from you? Would he be pleased with you? And the title here that he uses is probably a, a title of the Persian government and, and so this would be somebody who was higher up on the chain of the Persian Empire, who was overseeing the land of, of Judah and probably surrounding regions. And he basically says, try, try giving your second best to the emperor or to the governor and see how that happens. Try, try holding back a little bit and cheating the government on your taxes and see what happens. And there's a sense in which you could say that part of this, part of their failure to worship God rightly is about selfishness. It's about greed. It's about covetousness. Because why give God a perfectly good lamb that is worth this much And I can sell it for this amount when I can give God this lamb that is worth nothing and I can't sell it for anything and I can kill it and give it as a sacrifice and still make money off of this. You can't tell me that wasn't in their thinking when they're bringing their leftovers to God. So are we bringing our leftovers to God when we when the offering plate passes us and we throw a five in there? God is worthy of our best. Verse 9 gives us the solution if we're not giving God our best. Plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So verse 9 is the solution. So first point of the passage is when we bring our worthless things to God, it dishonors his name. It shows contempt for him. But for those who are guilty of worshiping God in a dishonoring way, the solution is to seek forgiveness from him. Is to turn to him and to plead with God to forgive us and to seek his favor. That's what Malachi says to the people. That's what the Lord says. Plead with God to be gracious to us. God desires our obedience. He desires our lives. He desires our whole hearts. Remember what 1 Samuel 15 22 says? When when Samuel confronted Saul because he made an offering when he wasn't supposed to make an offering. And Samuel confronted Saul and he said, God doesn't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. What does he delight in? He delights in obedience. He delights in obedience. David said in Psalm 51 that God delights in a broken and a contrite spirit. And so the first step in returning to proper worship of God is in the heart, isn't it? It's in the heart to remember, to remind ourselves, to be convicted of the fact that the Lord is worthy of of worship. He is worthy of our best, and if we have been guilty of not giving God our best, then our hearts are are broken for that, and we confess that before God, and we plead with Him to forgive us, and He will, won't He? He will. And by the way, as I read this passage and I think about the context that Malachi is set in, I can't help but think about the fact that this comes at the very end of the Old Testament. At the very end, before we have this this gap of silence before the New Testament, and one of the last words that we hear from a prophet of the Old Testament is that the sacrificial system is broken. It's broken, and it needs to be fixed. And then you get to the New Testament, and what do we read? It is going to be fixed, and it's going to be fixed forever in the person of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That all of these sacrifices that that they offered, animal sacrifices, even the good ones, even the best ones, were still not sufficient to fully atone for their sins. We needed a full and final sacrifice from God, namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But even this, at the end of the Old Testament, it kind of points us forward and shows us we need a better solution. We're, We're longing for something to be made right. We're longing for something to be made complete And Jesus is that completion. He is that fulfillment. And so I'm comforted by the fact that that when my mind is not fully engaged in worship or when I'm distracted or, or when I'm not giving God my best, I am comforted by the fact that Christ has already given his best to God. And that we are accepted with him not on the basis of how much we can give, but on the basis of how much he has already given. But now, as being Christ's people who have been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Christ, we of all people who have been shown abundant grace should give God the very best that we can and repent when we don't. The last part of the passage in verses 10 through 14, Malachi is going to remind the people that if they don't worship God Rightly, If they don't hear the word of the Lord and turn to him, that God will remove his blessing from them and he will find others who will worship him rightly. He will remove his blessing from them and he will find others who will worship him rightly. In verse 10, he says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will accept no offering from your hands. Malachi almost says it'd be better for you not to worship at all than for you to come and give false, defiling, profane worship to God. But notice verse 11. The Lord says to the Israelite people, My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, Incense and pure offering will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. God will be honored. God will be honored. And if there's one thing that we can get from this passage, one one thing that we should not misunderstand, and that is somehow that somehow we can rob or steal away Glory or honor from God. God is glorious, period. God is honorable, period. God is majestic, period. When we bring that which is dishonoring to Him, it does not take anything away from God at all. But it certainly hurts us. certainly hurts us and it certainly can have an impact on the, the, the witness that we can have to the world. But the point that Malachi is making here is God will be honored, God will be glorified and if those that he has come to refuse to honor him and to glorify him, then he will go to others who will honor him and glorify him. And this has great impact for the relationship of the Gentiles to God. Because what we see in the New Testament unfold is that the Israelites do respond to Jesus Christ and respond to the Lord in a stubborn, hard-hearted fashion, don't they? By and large, on the whole, the Israelite people reject God. On the whole, the Israelite people reject God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, And according to Paul, this is why God turned to the Gentiles. So that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. And so that, as Malachi predicted here, God's name would be honored among the nations. And so those who did not honor God, they were broken off of the the olive branch, if you will. And God went out and found others and grafted them in, Gentiles, into this olive branch and he will be glorified among the nations. This is exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of his day who were rejecting him. He said, there is coming a time when people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west, and they will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrust out. So if people continue to refuse to honor God, God will draw others to himself to honor him even if that means rejecting some of the children of Abraham and bringing in the nations to honor him. He will be honored. Verse number 11 is a beautiful verse that reminds us that the Lord is glorious among the whole world. He says, my name will be great among the nations from the, where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. In other words, there's coming a time, and I believe this has not yet been fully fulfilled, but there's coming a time in which God, his son, Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit, will be honored from sea to shining sea. From east to west, north to south, every square inch of this globe will honor Christ, will honor the Lord. And so God calls them to account. In verse 14, he calls them cheats and deceivers because they're withholding from God what rightfully belongs to him and because they're not bringing their very best to him. And the passage concludes with the Lord reminding them that he is a great king. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty and my name is to be feared among the nations. There is no Israelite king in the whole Bible that is ever referred to by this title, a great king. This title is reserved for God in the Old Testament. It's found here. It's found, found in a few of the Psalms. But this title is reserved for the Lord. He is the great king. He's the one who appointed David, Solomon, the other kings who followed in his line but he is the king of kings, isn't he? He is the lord of lords and as the most supreme king, the most supreme lord he is worthy of all honor, all glory, all majesty. This is why God saves us. This is why God draws us to himself. This is why God changes our hearts and opens our eyes to see the gospel and believe Jesus Christ. Why? Because God desires for there to be a whole assembly of worshipers proclaiming how great God is. God saves us. He rescues us from our sin and he rescues us from condemnation so that Revelation five will be true that from every tribe and tongue and nation, there will be people praising God surrounding the throne, giving praise and honor to the lamb. That's why God saves us. That's why God rescues a people so that he will be great so that his name will be honored. And so we, as his people very simply need to give God the worship that he is due. That doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. We're still going to fall. We're still going to fail. But as the Holy Spirit helps us, enables us, and with every ounce of energy that we can, with every purpose, with every intention of our hearts, we need to seek to give God the very best because he's worthy of it. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, I pray that you would forgive us for distracted minds, for times when we're tempted to become bored with church, with worship, when we're distracted or bored with the reading of scripture, when our minds wander when we're praying to you, when instead of giving you our very best, we give you just our leftovers. God, forgive us. And we thank you that you have Forgiven us, and you will forgive us because of the blood of Jesus Christ that has been offered on our behalf. Not a blemished offering, not blind or lame, but a perfect, spotless Lamb. The eternal Son of God, made flesh, who dwelt among us, gave his life as a once for all finished sacrifice so that we might be accepted before you. So Lord, now that Christ has offered the ultimate sacrifice, may we offer to you our lives, our bodies, as a living sacrifice to you. And may we give you our very best, and may you help us by your grace to do that. And we pray this in the name of Christ, amen.